You're listening to the ESO Network, your station for all things geek. Hello, please let me see your ticket subs for the double-edged double bill. Tonight, Stanley Kubrick presents Dr. Strangelove, or How I Learned to Stop Worrying and Love AI. Each week, Adam Thomas and Thomas Nariani will come to the table to discuss the randomly selected yin and yang of a double feature. Then both will have to pick a number between 1 and 10 in order to seal their fates for the next episode. One will have two good movies, the other two bad ones. Let the chaos begin. And I am Thomas Nariani, your lovable robot son. Please love me. Please. Please love me. Oh. Uh, and I am Adam Thomas, or a teddy bear, or... Uh, Brennan Gleason, or just I'm just a bunch of stuff. You know, Adam, I really like that, but let's do another take. In fact, let's do like 500 more takes of that right now. Mm-hmm. Keep doing it. Yeah, keep doing yeah, it yeah. Until we get it right. Until I have a nervous breakdown. Yes, of course. And you're just like, what do you want? <laughs> and uh, that is in honor of our subject for the evening, which uh, was chosen by our patrons over at patreon.com. Uh, slash GEDBpod, which we'll talk about a bit more in a bit, um, because uh, we, you know, have talked about directors plenty of times, Adam, but they usually tend to be directors who are living, or in the case of someone like a Stuart Gordon, someone who just recently passed, um, and we, but we never talked about somebody who's been gone for a while, but focused a whole episode on them, and uh, between uh, our two subjects for the Patreon poll, it was either Alfred Hitchcock or Stanley Kubrick, and our patrons picked Stanley Kubrick. I knew that shit. I called that. And why do you think uh, that one maybe had a bit more sway? How much has Hitchcock been dissected in, in not only genre podcasts, but mainstream media? I mean, it's nonstop. I mean, Kubrick has too, but there's there's more of a mystique to Kubrick. But like, as you alluded to with the 500 takes and then the whole documentary, you know, Room 237, where there's supposedly all these backstories to all this shit. Plus, he just made fucking kind of weird movies, man. Well, not to mention, you kind of also addressed this at the end of our last episode when we were doing the picking for this one, that uh, he also didn't make nearly that many films. Um, in no, fact, 16, he, I think. 16, if you include, like, he did some short documentaries. It's only 13 technically feature movies, and even two of those, his earlier ones, are, like, barely over an hour long. Gotcha. Which I recently watched uh, as filling up some holes in the filmography of... Michelle Kubrick. We talked about Stanley Kubrick before in terms of we covered his movie The Killing, but you're not typically a Kubrick fan in general. Right. No, I'm not a fan. I don't, like, hate Stanley Kubrick. Take it or leave it with most of his work. Like, it's fine. Like, Clockwork Orange is fine. It is what it is. I know people who fucking love it. But for me, it's it's okay. I, I gotta think that, especially with a movie like 2001, if I saw it in the theater, I probably would have more admiration for it. Yeah, he's okay. He's all right. No, no, Stanley Kubrick. Oh, the the hottest of takes. The meh take. The internet doesn't know what to do with that. I'm going to have to hate him or love him. You can't have any kind of middling feelings. With anything. No, never. No, with anything. Uh, Everything has to be completely absolute. 
Yes, exactly. Um, I mean, I remember when I was younger, I definitely kind of fell into a lot of the Kubrick hype, especially considering a lot of what you mentioned, like his sort of perfectionist um, image um, that kind of came along, especially as you would watch him, like The Shining, which was, I know, the first one I saw of his, and hearing how much he especially would, like, drive for, like, uh, Scatman Crothers and Shelley Duvall to, like, do so many different takes. And I thought, like, oh, man, he's so meticulous. He must be a master filmmaker. And then I got older, and then I saw stuff like, if you've ever seen the -the behind-the-scenes documentary that his daughter Vivian Kubrick filmed when they were doing that movie, he is just, like, basically abusing Shelley Duvall horribly. Verbally and psychologically. She's literally, like, has hair falling out of her fucking head by the end of that fucking movie. Um, it's it's ridiculous. Kubrick was sort of my first introduction to that kind of idea of, like, auteur director who would be doing something that, this is somebody who has such a control over the set, but ultimately, as I've grown older, it's also kind of just a realization of, like, maybe that whole auteur thing as an excuse for, like, being an asshole to actors and stuff is uh, not cool. It's just not something that we can really tolerate, especially now. Because I think he sort of cr- helped create that narrative that, like, oh, a director can, like, do all this stuff because it's for the art as opposed to, like, no, they're, they're people. <laughs> like, chill. Yeah, I, I absolutely agree. Let's put it the way, this way. He's the most well-known uh, like that until you got, like, later on with, like, David O. Russell and other people like that who are just horribly verbally abusive. But then it also trickles down to where, you know, now there's actors like that and there's everybody else, you know. It, it's just... I agree with you, though. Don't get me wrong. I, I love film, obviously. That's what we talk about weekly. But that's it's crossing a major line. There's no need to literally make it a torturous experience for people because it's your it's your art. Like fucking Christian Bale. What are you doing? You're, it's Terminator <laughs> Salvation, buddy. Relax, okay? You're not going to get an Oscar for this. I promise no. you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's, it's such a bummer that, like, that is, like, so intrinsically tied to Kubrick because at the same time I do love a lot of his movies and I do think he did miraculous work especially like I think you can also agree that even if you're not necessarily the biggest fan you can see the influence in the innovation that came especially for some of those earlier movies that he did oh without a shadow of doubt I mean well obviously that's why he is Stanley Kubrick that's why he's got the name you know recognition still to this day that's why he's considered so influential a lot of his movies like those earlier movies there was nothing like The Shining ever there was nothing like you know, Clockwork Orange. There's nothing like 2001 Space Odyssey. His movies are very, very unique. Um, they are often replicated, but never duplicated. I watched the In Search of Darkness documentary, the 80s horror documentary on Shudder, and they talk about at one point that sort of Kubrick making The Shining in 1980 was kind of a big step in legitimizing horror a bit more as a more like mainstream genre because you had someone like a Kubrick tackling it. Which, then again, I think he kind of did that with all the different movies. Like, another big thing is the guy never really repeated the same move twice. Like, he's done several different war movies, as we'll probably talk about, but none of them are the same. Same thing with, like, um, you know, period drama Barry Lyndon or The Shining. Like, he would visit these particular genres, but never really, like, duplicate what he tried to do before. He always was trying to innovate and do something different, which you can respect, even if it's not your cup of tea. You don't have to respect shit if you don't want to true <laughs> yeah yes no i absolutely I, I completely agree yeah of course I, I mean i respect the man as a filmmaker and as a director and as an auteur but he was still a giant cock yes of course giant cock indeed we'll go ahead and go into our two movies because if you're new at the end of our last episode each of us had two different movies of uh certain quality uh that we randomly picked uh, via a number between one and ten from each other so i had two good picks 
at pick number two, one in ten, and that got us to our good pick, which is Doctor Strangelove, or How I Learned to Stop Worrying and Love the Bomb. And then Adam had the same thing for two bad picks related to this topic, and I ended up picking number between one and ten, and we got AI Artificial Intelligence, which was a very interesting pick, as we'll get into a bit later. But first, let's talk about um, the first film, Doctor Strangelove, or How I Learned to Stop Worrying and Love the Bomb. It looks like we're in a shooting war. The hell? Well, boys, I reckon this is it. Nuclear combat toe-to-toe with the Ruskies. Has that plane really got a chance of getting through? If the pilot's good, see. He can barrel that baby in so low. <laughs> you ought to see it sometime. It's a sight, you. A big plane, like a 52. <laughs> Dr. Strangelove. Or how I learned to stop worrying and... Love the bomb. <laughs> so, Dr. Strangelove... Or how I would stop worrying and love the bomb. Gotta say the whole title. We're doing that the whole episode. Because <laughs> <laughs> if we are, I just gotta be prepared. Let me get a lot. Uh, came out in 1964 and was uh, Stanley Kubrick directed it, of course, um, which he co-wrote with Terry Southern and Pete George, uh, based on George's novel called Red Alert, which I found out is a much more serious novel about the subject, which is literally uh, nuclear deterrence back in the 60s, like, this is not too long after the Cuban Missile Crisis, and um, it is about basically just the sort of comedic strains of this very serious idea, and apparently, like I said, the novel is very straight-laced, apparently, Red Alert. It's a much more straight-laced, like, oh my god, this is a terrifying thriller concept, but as Kubrick kind of developed it, he realized, oh, there's something so weirdly, inherently satiric and silly about the idea of let's have nuclear bombs in order to make peace with the nuclear deterrent idea. It's so ridiculous. And uh, does that comedy still hold up for you today, Adam? Oh, yeah, it's still sharp as attack, this movie. Fuck, man. I mean, just Peter Sellers. Good God. He's just, he's so good in it. Uh, You know, I'm just going to get right into my favorite scene. Now, of course, I forgot the character's name, but when he calls the dictator on the phone, and he's told him, you know, yes, we made an error, and uh, we accidentally uh, bombed your country. No, 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 I, I'm as worried as you are. Well, I'm not calling to say hello. Well, of course I want to call to you to say hello. Of course I want this to be a friendly conversation. That's not what I'm saying. It's, just, it's perfect. Now, Dimitri. Dimitri. Yeah, that's it. It's Dimitri. <laughs> it's perfect. It's so funny. Like I said, it's so sharp and so brilliantly, like, written and acted, and... It's just, it definitely still holds up. It's both kind of like a blessing and a curse for this movie, because it's it's a weird thing we're given. It's about, basically, the issue of um, a very paranoid weird general, played by Sterling Hayden, ends up uh, calling for a massive nuclear bomb strike on the Russian bases, and it ends up being this race to try and either stop it, or some people are still trying to make it go. Um, what What's so fascinating to me, especially watching it this time... Um, was how much it definitely is, like, very funny in sort of inherently obvious silly ways, but also how much of it is just, like, so darkly true, especially, like, the Sterling Hayden character when he's talking about his issues with fluoride and precious bodily fluids. Um, it sounds a lot like chemtrails and QAnon bullshit that's still going on, like, right now. <laughs> Absolutely. This movie, it's so funny, you could make this movie almost exactly as it is now, and people would be like, oh, yeah, I get it. You would just have to change some of the fucking terminology you would also probably have to change the president from like a meek but well-meaning character probably yeah 
But anyway, with uh, with this particular movie, there's 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 so much stuff that like, despite being made in 1964, it still really rings true. And I think a lot of it comes from uh, Roger Ebert uh, wrote a great uh, little foreword in the book that comes with the DVD that I have of this, where he talked a lot of <laughs> where he talked about basically the idea of like the inherent humor in comedy isn't somebody wearing a funny hat. It's somebody who doesn't know they're wearing a funny hat and is trying to treat a situation super seriously. And that's this movie all over, because Kubrick is such a brilliant sort of director to have doing this, where every set looks immaculate like the war room. It looks so sleek and slick and almost so real that any time anybody's doing something silly, it makes it all the sillier because they're in this very sterile environment that seems like it could be right underneath the White House or something. Well, that's what led to the sort of dark humor of the whole thing, too, where it is it is this very sterile, sort of bleak uh, environment and setting, and, and you just got people acting like morons down there. And it's kind of probably kind of true to what really happens in these sort of environments. You just get a bunch of people acting like fucking idiots down there. It's been a long time since I've seen this. And, you know, as a kid, I, I'm laughing at Peter Sellers in the wheelchair doing the, the Nazi salute and controlling his arm because I didn't understand what the hell was going on <laughs> and all that stuff. And it was just so funny. But now watching it, and it's still funny, but for completely different reasons. Right. The literal idea, like, with Strangelove, which, who I forgot, was not in this movie nearly as much. He's in, like, maybe three scenes of this movie, and he's, like, mm-hmm. in the background lurking. Um, but, like, the fact that he has this almost, like, a big recurring theme of this movie being like um, issues with uh, being unable to control yourself as a man with penis envy um, is with like his particular character of like always trying to do the Nazi salute, but trying to hide it. Like I, just, he just can't literally control this like automatic response to any kind of situation or his saying of mind fewer and all this other stuff. Um, it, it, there's, there's so much of just like these people can't keep their dicks in their pants as they're trying to do, like, in, even in a metaphorical sense, with, like, my favorite character, honestly, is uh, General Turgidson, as brilliantly played by George C. Scott, I think is yeah. one of the great over-the-top performances in any movie, <laughs> which was not apparently what he wanted to do. Like, Kubrick basically kept saying, like, hey, we're going to do a bunch of takes, George, but why don't you do, like, a fun, silly one first, loosen yourself up, and those are all the takes that he used <laughs> were the fun, silly ones. <laughs> Oh, that's a good way to trick him, because George C. Scott was historically a very serious actor. Yeah. He's absolutely great, to the point to where I almost, watching it, you almost forget it's George C. Scott. It's mm-hmm. so unlike anything you've seen George C. Scott do. He's so brilliantly funny in it. And so phenomenally physical. Like, every tick in his face, or my favorite bit, that apparently was totally improvised, he got so into the one scene where he's just like, well, press it, look over at the board, and he, like, does a weird flip. <laughs> it's so fucking great and it feels like it's totally meant for the scene but it's totally improvised because he just fell over it's tremendous stuff it's unlike anything I've ever seen come out of George C. Scott and it is probably other than Strange Love himself I'd say one of the more, most slapsticky sort of performances in the movie mm-hmm. just because of all the physical uh, tics and characteristics but like once he's on, when he's on screen you can't not watch him it's an absolutely wonderful performance, and it's, again, it's sort of depressing when you watch this movie, too, because you're like, this is probably not too far off from how, how this shit actually gets handled by these fucking clown shoes. Because the first time I saw George C. Scott when I was a kid, I want to say it was Pat. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, that was one of my old man's favorite movies. Uh, so rewatching this now, it took me a minute. I'm like, who is it? I know that fucking face. I know. And so when I figured it out, I was like, oh my God, he's so good. I can't believe we didn't get more of this out of him. He could have been a really good sort of comedic presence. No, because he was much more known for being stoic, which he was very much against how Kubrick did that and was like very regretful about this performance, which I think is why we didn't get them as many uh, sort of big comedic things from it, which is a bummer because you can also see the influence for that particular performance on like a Jim Carrey all the way down to even even as lower level like a Jim Varney, I think, owes his entire career to the mugging in this movie from George C. Scott. Absolutely. absolutely. To the point where in some of the mugging scenes, I swear to God, I'm like, I know it sounds crazy, but I'm like, I wonder if this guy was related to Jim Varney before I figured out who it was. <laughs> it's the nose. Kidding. The nose really looks so similar. The nose and like the mouth, constantly doing the lips and making the frown and everything. Like it looks like Jim Varney. It looks like he's about to go. You know what I mean? <laughs> like it's it's really well done though. What is your favorite Sellers uh, character in the movie? Um, I mean, I would probably say the the president character, uh, Merkin Muffley, which is another great mm. <laughs> silly so name. <laughs> so fucking funny. But because he's, like, playing this president character who, it, for all intents and pur- purposes, is trying to be the most civil person in the room, but is also so meek at every point, like, with that great scene where he calls the Russian ambassador, he's like, True. now I one of our boys, uh, he went a little funny, and he did a yeah, very yeah. silly thing. <laughs> like... Well, I- I know you're upset. I'm just as upset with you. I'm allowed to be as upset as you. We are equally upset, Dimitri. <laughs> it's such a perfect scene, and the fact that you don't hear a single bit of the other side is so goddamn funny. I know. I did, but everybody's reactions who are listening to the phone call watching him, they're like, oh, God, what the fuck? It's but, so good. But, I mean, he's so great even as, like, Strange Love is obviously the most over-the-top performance, but even Mandrake, who is the one that doesn't get a lot of credit the... Um, is such a perfect step upper lip, uh, sort of like British military officer. That's so funny against Sterling Hayden, who is also very straight faced, but it's it's so right. much funnier. They're, they're so good together. Yeah. So yes, yes, go ahead. Yes, of course, of course, have a wash. No, yes, that would make a man feel so good at this time. Yes, uh, <laughs> it kills himself. <laughs> so fucked up. It's so good, Mister. I'll get your money out of there. But if you give that phone call to the President of the United States, you're going to have to answer to somebody. Oh, yeah, who? The Coca-Cola Company. <laughs> uh, Keenan Wynn, phenomenal. That, like, one-scene performance. Very good. Yep. Yeah, that, But I, I love also the satire that, like, the only things that some of these people appreciate in absence of, like, a sort of authority figure they know is, like, a corporate entity of the fucking Coca-Cola yeah. Company. That's genius. Um, like, that's the thing, is, like, there's so many great scenes that just work on a very basic level, where, like, I was found that scene funny when I first saw this in, like, high school, and now as you get older, it's like, oh, there's so much more, like, layers of satiric intent here that make it all the more funnier, but as you mentioned, just all the more depressing, <laughs> because 60, from 64 to now, it hasn't changed that much. It's not at all, yeah. <laughs> unfortunately. I mean, just some of the terminology, of course, but, yeah, it's, like, you. And even, like, there was some basis, in fact, with, like, the Sterling Hayden character and George C. Scott's character were both based off of, like, an actual military person. Um, it was uh, General Curtis Lee May, who was, like, a part of the Strategic Air Command, and was really infamous for being, like, very pro-bombing and anti-communist, um, to the point where, like, when the Cuban Missile Crisis happened, he was the one guy who was super adamant that we should bomb Cuba. Like, even after everything was resolved, he still thought we should have done it. <laughs> oh, nice guy. The great guy, awesome. Yeah, real good guy. Cool dude. 
All right. All right. Great guy. My boy, Jane LeMay. They, they have so many of these guys, like, clearly play some of these things very straight to where they so much believe. Like, that's a great asset to um, the Slim Pickens part, who we haven't talked about that much. Yeah. And all the stuff in the, the bomber um, with uh, General Kong and his uh, crew, including the film debut of James Earl Jones, Darth Vader himself. Um mm-hmm. Who was a young, bright face and the only one to question, hey, maybe this is like a test and not like a real thing, and is immediately dismissed. <laughs> I, know. I know. It's great. It's absolutely great. Yeah, that was wild seeing him. I think I knew that when I first saw it, because of course I knew who James Earl Jones was now, because I don't know if I really recognized it when I was younger. I'm sure I did, but seeing it now, you're like, oh my God, it's James Earl Jones. Wow, is he fucking young. <laughs> like, you know. But with that being said, there's. There's the main ones we've mentioned, but there's not a lot of super recognizable people in this movie, and I think that's kind of what helps it. Because mm-hmm. if every you know general down in the the war room or whatever was recognizable, you, it would kind of take you out of it a little bit, I think. No, yeah, I, w- I would agree with that. Really, I think it works that the most recognizable person, even if you're like, watch this movie cold, it's just Peter Sellers playing these three different parts. Um, I think that really works because it almost shows how, like, despite these three men having very different backgrounds, they all sort of either suffer at the fate of um, other people or at the- their own expense to a certain degree in times of, like, war. And I think it's even the case with, like, in the in the bomber you have uh, General Kong leading uh, James Earl Jones as well as there's a um, a Canadian guy and a Jewish guy, like basically all like what were considered ethnics of that particular period. Um, and it's just like this, th- they're all under the command of this like very stereotypical Texan to the point where he has a fucking cowboy hat in the goddamn mm. bummer. <laughs> Which has been used over and over and over and over again. The pilot being from somewhere out West who has the, the cowboy hat. I mean, honestly, Danny McBride in in the newest Alien movie, uh, the guy in Jason X. Uh, I mean, I've seen it that cliche done over and over. There's so many things in this movie that you've seen again and again since. And even down to I, I loved the production design was so good. Apparently, with the air bomber, which they only they didn't have any um, assistance from the government. With that, they only went off, like, flight magazines for how the look of it was. That, like, some people visited the set who were, like, actual B-52 bombers, and they were like, did you, like, steal footage? Because this is exactly accurate. Like, it looked so supremely accurate to the point where, like, even in that that 52 bomber, but I think what works about that so much, because it looks so real, because the stakes are treated so seriously, like, oh, we're running out of fuel, and we gotta, like, drop this bomb. Like, it feels like you're watching one of those World War II flighter pilot movies where it's like oh my god are they going to get out of the situation are they going to drop the bomb and the whole point is like wait no you don't want that to happen (laughs) because that'll trigger the end of the world yeah you definitely don't want that to happen absolutely but out of the stanley kubrick oeuvre uh this is probably my favorite kubrick film i have respect for a lot of his other stuff it's really funny but not totally in your face funny the whole time there's subtle comedy, there's slapstick comedy, there's dark comedy to it. There's brilliant performances. I mean, I, I just, I, to me, this is probably his best. This and, or maybe The Killing. Um, I would also put, because um, I rewatched a lot of them, especially for this and saw some for the first time, I would say his sort of war trilogy with uh, Paths of Glory before this. 
which I think has sort of gotten lost a bit more in recent years, but I think it's a phenomenal movie. And then after this Full Metal Jacket, I think form an interesting trilogy where, like, you wouldn't know they were from the same filmmaker, but at the same time, they all have sort of recurring elements of, like, war as a farce, to some degree. Yeah. Like, Paths of Glory and Full Metal Jacket go much sort of, like, darker, disturbing um, territory with that. And this movie does to some extent, but... Nobody's getting beat with a bag full of bars of soap and Dr. Strangelove. No, no. They almost had a big uh, cream pie fight. That was almost how the movie ended. Which was cut because they're like, this feels like way too slapstick and farce for this ending. I agree. I agree. I don't think that would have been necessary. Well, especially when I would argue the last 10 minutes of this movie is some of like the most brilliant satire in any movie, particularly where like you have obviously the, the great shot of Slim Pickens going down with the bomb, which has been referenced so many times as one of the, the greatest sort of like, over-the-top cinematic images of, once again, a phallic symbol. He's just, like, fucking falling with his giant dick into the earth. He's fucking the earth to death. And then we get where the last conversation that our leaders have as, like, the doomsday device is being triggered is, maybe we could go into mines and, like, fuck ten ladies each and repopulate the earth. Leading into the whole nuclear bomb montage set to the We'll Meet Again song. Mm-hmm. I think it's one of the most striking, brilliant, and that's another great example of, like, the sort of irony that's inherent that feels, like, so ahead of its time of, like, oh, let's use this World War II song about, like, we'll ha- meet each other again at some point over nuclear holocaust. Yeah. It's sublime. Yeah, I think it's a very uh, striking, breathtaking way to wrap up the film. I love that that whole montage set to that song. I think it's it's so good. It fits perfectly with the movie, but it's real chilling in a way, and it's real sort of bittersweet. I, I lo- absolutely love that ending. And I love also how it contrasts with the opening sequence, which is also so great, of the B-52 bombers, like, fueling each other, set to the try a little tenderness. <laughs> <laughs> and it looks so inherently much like they're just fucking each other. It's it's a, it's a great movie about sort of sex and violence without being too sexual or too violent. Yeah, absolutely. I wouldn't call this movie violent or sexual, period. I, I mean, it is. But it's definitely not gratuitous in any way. But it's all about that at the same time, yes. without being yeah. too overt in either way. Yeah, absolutely. Before we do close off, I was curious, we'll probably talk a bit more about Sellers in general, just because this is the first time we ever talked about him in general. Uh-huh. Piece. Um, he was originally going to play Kong, along with the three other roles, but wasn't too proud of his Texan accent and also broke his leg, allegedly, when they started filming that. Oh. Do you think that would have like added to it, or do you think these three characters are just perfect? I think the three characters are absolutely enough. Would it have changed anything? Would it have made the movie worse or anything? No, of course not. I think it would have been, you know, probably a really fun performance too. But it's un- I don't think it was necessary. In fact, I could have done with just the president and just Dr. Strangelove. I like the other character too, but, but the president and Strangelove are just fantastic. And, and the way that he sort of acts off himself is, is just perfect. Yeah, and without too much of the uh, the Eddie Murphy style yeah. like split screen or anything like that. I love the bit where it's strange love talking to the president. It's just literally done with like doubles, mm-hmm. and just that's all you really need of it. Um, I think that's another thing is that Sellers to me. I this was my introduction to him when I was younger. And I'm like, oh my god, this is so masterful of all these different roles. And I've seen other Sellers movies, and I do think he was obviously very dedicated to sort of performing, given the fact that like he's said many times that any time he felt he was being himself alone, he wasn't really a person. He could only really be vibrant as a person if he was acting as a different character. Mm-hmm. 
you can tell he's almost compensating for that in a lot of other like the Pink Panther movies. I like some of those. But they get, like, to a certain point, just like, this is just, like, endless riffing. <laughs> and I, I'm really bored. Yeah, but he's good. He's he's consistent in all of them. But, yeah, yeah I, I definitely agree. Yeah. And my favorite of those is A Shot in the Dark, the second yes. one, which I think is very underrated amongst all the other ones. I completely agree. That is also my favorite. <laughs> but w- would you say this is sort of the best movie to showcase sellers in general, Strangelove? Yeah, I, I think so, absolutely, without question. He completely disappears into all three characters. Like, to the point to where... I think if you showed this movie to someone who didn't know what Peter Sellers did or who, I guarantee you, you could almost get away with him not realizing it's the same actor for at least two of the roles. Like, he's pretty fantastic. He disappears pretty well. All right. Well, uh, let's go ahead and go into our final thoughts because we have a whole other film to talk about. I mean, your final thoughts on Dr. Strangelove or How I Learned to Stop Wearing and Love the Bump? No, I'm not saying it. Um <laughs> <laughs> Uh, like I said, I think this is Kubrick's uh, one of his best. If it's not the best, it's in contention for number one. I mean, it's Peter Sellers being Peter Sellers to perfection. It's it's funny. It's satirical. It's still relevant. It's it's prescient. It's hilarious, but it's depressing at the same time. There's it's a classic for a reason. This is one of one of those like Casablanca and things like that. When like it's considered a classic, there's a reason this is a classic. Um, and it holds to all of those reasons. It's been deemed a classic still. Yeah, and uh, it was. It's also on our beloved AFI list at number thirty-nine. Mm, that's that's about right where I would put it. I think. No, and I, and I uh, obviously really love this as well. Like I said, it, I think it's a great showcase for sellers, and I think it's also a great showcase for Kubrick because he knew that his sort of style, his meticulous energy, would really work to counterbalance the comedy. And I think it's also an interesting evolution, given before this he had done like some of his earlier, smaller things, and then Paths of Glory and Lolita. And you can see a real evolution from like those up to this one, um, to the point where this feels almost like the first sort of definitive Kubrick movie, where he kind of uh, perfectly encapsulate his style and i just love the idea of being in like 1968 where it's like oh my god the guy who made dr strange lives gonna be another fun movie his next movie and it's 2001 a space odyssey which has the same dedication to the craft but in a completely different spectrum and genre and everything when you think about cooper like oh how could he switch so many genres it still feels like it's an important piece that like where we couldn't get from like a lolita to 2001 without a dr strange love because of that inherent darkness but also a lot of like that whimsy and wonder that he puts into it at the same time. Um, yeah, I think it, it's a, it's a great dark black comedy that still has a lot of unfortunate, but also insightful satire that holds up to this day. But let's get into our next feature in just a moment. After we hear this ad for an ESO show, you can queue up right after ours. We are Nerdlanta. We got these filters. I think they're called pea poppers. That's, oh, that's for our popping peas. Yeah, yeah. yeah. For, for popping all the peas. Sweaty balls and pea poppers. Always in time. time. <laughs> Can a podcast be a reboot? Oh Absolutely. God, yes. The Nerdlanta next generation. generation. Yes, yes. <laughs> that's awesome. We are highly calculated at a late hour. hour. You know, it's just it's always, always fun, fun to just talk about geeky stuff. stuff. And, and Nerd Atlanta, Atlanta is, is the place, place to do okay. it. I guess that's it. We played a promo. So. That was an awesome promo. Stella, to our next film, AI, Artificial Intelligence. Man made us better at what we do than was ever humanly possible. You're a machine. I'm a boy. Impossible. 
the humans. They'll stop at nothing. What do we do? We will have to journey towards the moon. Are you afraid of seeing the stars? I can show you how to reach them. So AI, artificial intelligence, uh, came out in 2001, which funny for Kubrick, but also funny in that uh, I believe Kubrick was too busy to direct this movie because he was dead, right? I mean, that's what they say. I think it was just laziness. Probably, yeah. Just sitting in that fucking coffin, whatever. Come on. But no, this was a passion project that Kubrick had wanted to do for a while. Um, He started developing it in 1970. So he was developing it throughout, like, from that time period through to his death in 1999. He had um, his uh, buddy Steven Spielberg attached to produce for a while, and um, that ended up kind of, you know, evolving into Steven Spielberg taking over the project to direct it, and also write it, interestingly, in one of the few screenplay credits Steven Spielberg actually has on the movie. Like, he's been credited with doing the story, and obviously has definitely affected, like, the way that some of his movies go in terms of, like, the actual structure of it. But he only has uh, screenplay credits for Close Encounters of the Third Kind, Poltergeist, and this movie. Isn't the rumor, like, he basically kind of wrote the middle of the movie? Yeah, because the... He adapted it a lot from... There was a treatment written by science fiction writer Ian Watson, who collaborated with Kubrick throughout a lot of, like, particularly the later development of the um, production for it. Um, And apparently uh, Spielberg based a lot of, like, the structure on the particularly the first act and the third act on this, which was it was also adapted from a story called Super Toys Last All Summer Long by Brian Aldiss, which basically was apparently the first act of this movie, pretty much everything with the family and David being brought in there. Um, and so it's a very interesting choice given not technically made by Kubrick, but has a lot of his stamps. Why do you specifically hmm. think this would be an interesting one to talk about, especially as a bad feature, Adam? It's a very div- divisive sort of movie. I remember when it came out... The whole story was there was a story circulating where, like, you know, Kubrick had actually directed some of it before he died, and then Spielberg went back in and they cleaned up a lot of the effects and he finished it and changed things and all that. Uh, it, it w- I figured it'd be the most interesting one to talk about because I don't want to say Clockwork Orange is a bad movie. I, I, there's not a lot of his movies that I think are bad. I just don't get into them. Like Eyes Wide Shut, I just don't like. I don't think it's terrible or anything it's just not for me but this one is a very sort of divisive film yeah the it sort of like came and went when it came because keep in mind this is also an interesting point for spielberg's career as director um given before this he had done like amistad and saving private ryan um and uh, even the lost world jurassic park which i feel like is the beginning of him kind of growing out of his phase of doing his traditional blockbuster work because it feels so half-hearted and very much like he doesn't have any interest in doing the old-school Spielberg sort of over-the-top blockbuster stuff anymore. And then after this would be, directly, would be Catch Me If You Can and Minority Report. Um, And it feels almost like, based on sort of him having written those other two movies of Poltergeist and Close Encounters, both of those are movies that deal with like sort of the awe and fear of their big over-the-top things, like with Ghosts and Poltergeist and aliens in um, Close Encounters, there's a sense of awe, but also terror at what's going on. And this feels like it's a guy who, so many decades after that, is, like, completely sapped of the wonder, but knows so much of the terror. And I right. think and I think that really affected me, because I last saw this in the theater nearly 20 years ago as a kid. 
And mm. I was just sort of attracted, like, oh, it's Steven Spielberg. It was around the time I started to get into, like, oh, a director has familiar traits of, like, an auteur kind of thing. Where it's like, oh, I right. love Jurassic Park. I love, you know, at that time, E.T., all these other things. I'm going to get, like, a big, fun Spielberg science fiction movie. And I was not prepared at all for this incredibly yeah. depressing, sad, fucked up sci-fi movie. <laughs> yeah, to say the least. You know, the thing about this movie is there's there's a lot in it that I really like. I love a lot of the visuals. I absolutely think Haley Joel Osment knocks it out of the park in this movie. I think he's absolutely fantastic. Mm-hmm. I love Jude Law in this movie. I just, I really like a lot of this movie, but it just feels sort of disjointed in a lot of places too. Like the first and the third act compared to the middle act with the flesh farm and all that stuff is like, you're like, what the fuck? Wait a minute. It butts heads with each other as far as style. And obviously you can tell now knowing that, you know, another writer came in and sort of finished the, finished it off and did things, especially in the middle act, which is really kind of weird that Kubrick was more influential or wrote the more like sentimental sappy parts of the movie with Dave beginning and everything and even at the end with the blue fairy and the the other androids that find him and things like that but kubrick stuff is like all the real kind of dark shitty stuff right the spielberg stuff is all like the the dark yeah, the shitty stuff in the murder thing the flesh farm the all that stuff that's spielberg well i think that's that's why i feel like it's so interesting as a fulcrum for spielberg's career because it feels like his big transition from big blockbuster guy into doing more of, like, the Saving Private Ryan or later, like, Munich Fair. Like, you can see so much of, like, he is out of touch with the blockbuster material and going full-on into the world is a terrible place and I need to examine why <laughs> in my yeah. big, over-the-top style. Um, but I, I think that's the thing is I definitely felt more that way when I initially saw it. I think more just, like, I couldn't process it. I, I, to quote David in the movie, I felt like my brain was falling out as a child watching this movie <laughs> because it's... Yeah so inherently just like so just like i remember so vividly being scarred by the scene where early on uh francis o'connor i think of an underrated part of this movie as the mom yeah she's um, really good uh is about to drive him off like okay we have to destroy you because you like threatened my son and all this other stuff unintentionally but i still love you as a mother so i'll compromise and fucking dump you in the woods that scene is so sad give you a pocket full of cash and just let you go until you don't trust humans, only people like you, like your kind, are the only it's ones. It's terrifyingly depressing. It's horribly depressing. And then the, even at the flesh farm, when he's in there and like the nanny bots, like it's okay, David, and she's holding him and stuff. And you're like, she's all fucked up looking. And you're like, oh my god, this is awful. That that's such this a great image. Awful. I love the bit where the nanny like turns around. You see that she's like only partially constructed in the head. Yes. Like that yes. whole sequence where all the various robots are farming out different parts. Like that yes. one's good. That feels like you, I agree. It would be a Kubrick thing. That was the accusation at the time was that Spielberg was like, oh, all the sentimental stuff. Spielberg all just added. Yeah, and yeah. it's like so much more the opposite. Apparently, yeah. with the, the production of it. But I still feel at the same time, even like some of the sappy stuff that's in this movie, I feel like isn't nearly as sappy as people kind of think it is. Like even like the David character, who at the beginning is very much like sort of precocious robot kid, quote unquote. But I think Spielberg is intentionally making this character like the saddest example of like a a mama's boy in terms of like yeah. when you're a kid and obviously there's the mama's boy stereotype like oh I love my mommy I'm always gonna like stay around her but it's like imagine if that kid had no other likes or impulses or wants but being around his mom and how terrifying that is yeah that's it 
No, I, I absolutely agree with you. And then even like the smaltzy stuff of, like you said, the mom loving him and everything. Well, of course she does. I mean, I mean he's just a little boy. And I mean, yes, he's a robot, but he has all the characteristics of just a little boy. But even then, there are also a lot of moments where Frances O'Connor clearly shows she can't handle this shit. Like when he ends up eating the spinach and he's being operated on by the people. And he just says, as she's holding his hand, like, don't worry, mommy doesn't hurt. And she fucking leaves to go into the corner for a second. Yeah, that's <laughs> fucking crazy, dude. <laughs> Or when, like, they're all laughing, and then he starts laughing, and she's like, uh, uh, <laughs> like, oh, this kid's creeping me out. Yeah, because he's still a little fucking android, but he has all the characteristics of this sweet, beautiful little mama's boy. And all he wants to do is just become real so his mom will love him. It's fucking sad. To go back to what you were talking about, though, I do agree. I think Haley Joel Osment, who was just coming off of being an Oscar-nominated, like, nine-year-old for The Sixth Sense and doing this, it's a weird performance where I think this killed his child star career, but it's a bummer because it's such a phenomenal performance. I think it's just, like, he's too good at playing a weird, fucked-up little android boy. (laughs) Because this is maybe, I would argue, one of the best performances of a human trying to be an android in any movie. Yeah, absolutely. He, he's spot on pitch perfect. When he does the switch, when she does the code words, and he becomes like, you know, in love with her, then he just becomes this curious little sort of boy. He's, he's not as cold anymore. But even then, there's there's still a lot of moments that feel mechanical, like particularly even during sure. the sequence where like he has his big breakdown in the forest. Like, the the switch is, like, so clear of, like, oh, this is mechanical, where he goes from, oh, we're going to have our picnic to, no, please don't leave me here. It's shocking how quick that is oh Oh. and by the way teddy's the mvp of this movie yes his his little teddy bear which is a phenomenal effects we should mention stan winston company did a phenomenal job with all these different robot designs and teddy is mostly practical there's a few points where he's cg but it feels seamless honestly oh absolutely absolutely and i i loved oh and when he loses teddy oh no Oh, God. (laughs) But but then also even the little weird bits of humor uh, with Teddy, like, being carried around for the lost and found through the flesh fair. Uh, Great one shot, by the way. I love how, like, showing the whole flesh fair. But him being like, are you David? Are you taking me to David? Do you know where David is? Or when he falls, ow. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's great, dude. And how much do you not like the the real little boy? Like, I mean, you're like this little fucking brat. It helped also, I recognized him at the time he was on a Disney Channel sitcom called Lizzie McGuire. He played the younger brother of the titular Lizzie McGuire, where he was also oh, a little the, shit. Uh, the Hillary Duff show? The Hillary Duff show, yeah. Oh, where, so okay. I knew him from that. It's like, oh, you're still a little shit here, but in a more maniacal, awful way. It's like, cut some of mommy's hair, she'll love you. Like, whoa, <laughs> what the fuck? <laughs> fuck, man, I know. And even the the father in that particular relationship is Sam Robards, son of Lauren Bacall and Jason Robards. I did know that. Yes, I did. But what do you, what did you think of Jude Law in this? Oh, I love Jude Law in this as well. Honestly, I will say, in case you couldn't tell, I think with this watch, I became so much more of a fan of this movie. I think I'm kind of way more in like the almost I think it's great, I love it <laughs> kind of camp. Um, and I think this is, this is also interesting because it's very early in Jude Law's career. It's such a phenomenal physical performance, especially of a robot, and he based a lot of his like dance moves on like Gene Kelly and Fred Astaire, and he has that gracefulness. It's almost just mm-hmm. like fuck, we were robbed of like a great Jude Law dance movie. We should have gotten that. 
We were robbed of a lot of great Jude Law movies. Let's be well, honest. Because right after this is like sort of the, oh, we're going to make him be in everything, including 2004, where he was in like five movies in one year. And they just I really, know. this is a great example for what I think ultimately worked for him. We've talked about this before of like, he is a very handsome character actor, not a lead actor. And he's so great at doing this particular side part where Gigolo Joe is really the most empathetic of any of the robots in the movie. Where, like, he actually has, because of his literal gigolo ability, he has this, like, empathic sort of programming that makes him work as almost like a weird surrogate father character for David. And you're almost just like, why the fuck even, like, leave and try and find your William Hurt actual inventor daddy? Just stay with gigolo daddy. (laughs) Gigolo daddy is much better for you. I completely agree. I'm glad you said it, because I kind of love this movie. I know I, it works for it works for a bad pick because I agree it's so divisive and it was very dismissed at the time. It just sort of went to the wayside right before, like we mentioned, Spielberg sort of had his big like career transition into being more of a prestige director. But it's such an interesting fulcrum point because you can also see like so much of like Spielberg, particularly his obviously like issues with like being a parent and divorce are very inherent in this movie. But more from the perspective like this feels like him finally wrestling with like oh yeah this is what it's like to have a kid. And have the realization that, like, they'll imprint on you forever and their entire worldview will be dependent on their relationship with you and how they kind of view things at the same time. It feels like it's very much, it's a horror movie about, like, bringing a child into the world. Yeah, that's a, that's a really good way to put it. Even if you just want to watch it without trying to get deep meaning to it, which is almost impossible, but visually it's stunning, too. Yes. It's, I mean, this movie, the filters that are used to, to accent certain scenes... The makeup effects, the practical effects, the cinematography, the set design, the costume design, the score. I mean, it's a pretty beautiful movie. And it's a it's a really interesting depiction of the world where you can tell so much of the Kubrick influence, but also it has Spielberg's kind of like knack for world building inherent to it oh. at the same time. Would you say this feels more like um, Spielberg trying to emulate Kubrick or more of like a meld of the two? It's definitely a meld of the two because this doesn't feel like a... Spielberg film and it doesn't feel like a Kubrick film. It feels like its own thing with with tones of both. So yeah, I'd say it meld. For sure. Yeah, because it has some of that like sleek depiction. Like I do I love the look of the Rouge City and how it feels blade runnery, but so much more trashy. It's so gross. It's so <laughs> you can like see the filth and it's it's also interesting because it's a, a movie that feels so inherently cynical about so much despite being, you know, like Spielberg and, and Kubrick kind of melding together. Like I love the sequence where Jude Law is talking about the idea of like, oh, I pick up all my best clients right outside of church because they come in, they try and like melt away their problems and they come back and seek comfort from me right afterward. Like there's so many great little satiric bits that are like throughout this whole movie that make it it's it's so like smart there's so much to unpack like we could have devoted an entire episode just dissecting so much of this movie well i remember when i first saw it i i liked it like i said it felt disjointed but i i was still really kind of stuck on halo joe osmond and the visuals and things like that and i've rewatched this several times since then i've seen this movie quite a few times and each time i watch it i like it more and more and more and now i'm at the point where it's like i genuinely kind of love this film like i think it's just that good and there's character actors all throughout this fucking thing. Mm-hmm. I, like I said earlier, Brendan Gleeson shows up at the Flesh Farm. You got the band Ministry doing the song. Yeah, voice cameos by like Robin Williams and Meryl Streep, yep. who show up in yep. there. Uh, Chris Rock is one of like yep. the, the Flesh Fair. 
uh, got, uh, robots, um, and of course uh, Ben Kingsley doing the narration. When you go into this movie, I think very much like even like my nine, nine-year-old perception or anybody else at the time, you went in and thought, oh, you were going to get a Spielberg fun movie, and then you're just so disarmed by like what this movie ends up being that like when you have to kind of go back to it, I think it's aged so beautifully. Like even down to starting immediately on a grim note of like, oh hey, um, global warming has caused Manhattan to be have sea levels rise so far. I just love how like the movie is so deceptive about the whole Pinocchio thing, where on its face it feels like a very Spielberg thing of like, oh, it's connected to Pinocchio. He's made plenty of Pinocchio references in his other movies. It's going to be, oh, you know, um, Taylor Joe Osmond is going to like try and search for the Blue Fairy, and he's going to like find whatever piece that he can. And it turns out, oh, what he finds is that he was led here by William Hurt as a cold, calculated way of getting him back into his little grubby mitts. And is basically told, like, oh, hey, we're glad that you're here. We can study you so much more and develop even more David robots. And that horrific scene where he goes into the boardroom and sees all the different Davids and the Daniels, like in the boxes in particular, um, it's so unsettling. It's just like, oh, hey, kid, your whole search, your whole Pinocchio search for, like, being a real boy is, like, your real boyness is being a capitalist tool. That's what you are. Yes, absolutely. And how good is William Hurt, too? Oh, I, yeah, he's he's phenomenal in this uh, for being, like, this guy who has a genuine curiosity but also has no empathy. He's very much right. like, oh, this is like Elon Musk in, like, five minutes or five years, whichever. Or just William Hurt now. Or William Hurt. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I think that's how he is. <laughs> um, yeah, dude, and the thing is, it is a little bit longer of a film. Two and a half hours, but it flies by for me. It fucking flies by, dude. It flies by so fast because there's so much going on. There's constantly something going on, uh, whether it's subtext or right in front of your face. This movie is just packed to the gills, dude. I absolutely just – and like I said, the visuals. And when they do get to Manhattan and the the waterfalls coming off some of the buildings and then the underwater fairy tale land and all that stuff. And even the look of the advanced mechas – you right, know, we definitely could talk about this ending because this is the most controversial point of the movie, especially at the time, was uh-huh. um, the whole 2,000 years later epilogue that happens and how so many people, I think I even bought into this at the time, of just like, oh, it should have just ended with like him looking at the Blue Fairy underwater. But that doesn't feel nearly as, like when you think about it, as interesting or complex as the ultimate ending is, despite how like very simple it seems on the face of it. Where it's like, oh, he gets yeah. his happy ending, gets to be with his mommy, whatever. At the time, a lot of people dismissed it as that. And watching it now, it's just like, oh, this is so much more possessive and disturbing and fucked up <laughs> than people gave it credit for at the time. But, like, how do you feel about the ending? I think the ending's fine as is. I wouldn't change it. I gotta be honest, I was definitely one of the one of the ones when it first came out, like, are they fucking aliens? Or, like, what are they? Because mm-hmm. they look so different. But obviously, you know, you just do take two seconds, you realize what it is. But it's really kind of still kind of depressing. Like, here, David, we get you the th- give you the thing you always want, and it's for one day. And then what now? This poor fucking kid. Well, like, I agree that was more of what I thought at the time, but I think now there's something even more slightly sinister about it, because what's so interesting about David's evolution over the course of the movie is he goes from being, like, more of the scared little boy to, like, he does become more human, but in a way that's, like, about the deeply disturbing sort of, like, seeking of attention and love and gratification we all have. Right. Like, it's, it's way more about, like, David is like, oh, okay, um, I can either let my mom stay in that particular point in space-time 
Because that's literally what it is. It's like, oh, we can take your mom out of space time, but for one day, and put her into this particular realm. He's basically saying, like, no, I don't want to keep my mom in her particular point in time. I want to pluck her out of that and have her basically just live in one more day and then die instantaneously just because I really wanted this particular thing. Like, there's so much more that's, like, possessive in a real human, disturbing, unfortunate way that's there, but it's put in the guise of just like, oh, I'm going to have a fun day with mommy. That's so fucked up. I definitely agree with you. I've always liked the ending. I never thought the ending was too sappy at all. I I think ultimately it's a very bleak ending. A lot of people don't look at it like a character study or it's, you know, it's just a sci-fi movie, but dude, there's so many layers to this fucking thing. There's so many. Every time I watch it, I notice something else or pick up on something else. Like every time. I would honestly say my only issue with the ending is I would wish we didn't have as much of the Ben Kingsley narration at the end. I like the use of the Ben Kingsley narration at the beginning. And I like the idea that he's the intelligent mech who's basically been telling us this this whole time. But uh, I think just some of like the, much of the narration where it's just like, oh, and David ne- never had a birthday, so David had a cake. And it's like, we were going to see you bad. The over-explanation. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, I agree with that. As, um, But I still, at the same time, I love the idea of these mechs who are basically like, oh, hey, you're our ancestor, and you gave us so much information about humans, we're going to give you your one wish, but we're... Ass- what, I think what the ending's kind of implying is that we're going to turn you off. And this yeah, is like your so. last bit. Yeah, and this is like a simulation. This is your last dying brain spasm before everything goes off I, I guess I want to ask so how do you think this fits into like Spielberg's career in terms of like what do you think he's kind of um, commenting on from before and what do you think he's kind of taken afterward from this movie that people maybe don't see as much this to me is Spielberg's like major attempt to to show what he can do that it doesn't have to be a huge blockbuster that it doesn't it can be serious he is he can do serious works yeah, it's weird where he'd already won his Oscars for both uh, Schindler's List and Saving Private Ryan, but it still feels like he almost wants to prove himself. Because even at the time with those movies, there was still criticism about, like, oh, it's still Spielberg, like, very obvious, over the top to some degree. And I think this definitely feels like he's wrestling with a lot of those uh, kind of criticisms about himself, but even kind of internalizing that. Because what I like about Spielberg, and we should definitely talk about this whenever we do a Spielberg-specific episode, is he's always been critical of himself, like, there's the great Spielberg HBO documentary where he talks about just, like, oh, yeah, I, I 1941 was such a massive mistake for me. And it's as if he's willing to, like, really take a look at what he did and either praise certain things or completely deflate um, whatever didn't work necessarily. And this definitely feels like it's him being very uh, sort of almost like midlife crisis about his career. But um, also at the same time kind of dealing with, like, bigger complex themes about, like I said, like family or nature and nurture or um the progression of humanity to the certain point or even just you know like this movie is so incredibly cynical about humanity to the point where like the whole flesh fair sequence i love how it capitalizes on like one person in the crowd saying hey human like a an ai wouldn't beg for its life meanwhile all these ais have been begging for their lives or to have their pain circuits removed or all this other stuff like, weirdly, this is the most cynical I think Spielberg's honestly ever been in his career. And it feels like it's because of this weird midpoint. Yeah, I, I think that's absolutely uh, 100% accurate. This is why, you know, this is why you make the big bucks. <laughs> All those big bucks. <laughs> Patreon.com slash pot, please. <laughs> so, I mean, we could go on forever about this movie, Adam. Uh, there's so much to dissect, but uh, let's get into our final thoughts, and especially how you think this works as sort of like a final tribute to Kubrick. 
Well, my final thoughts is I absolutely am enamored by this movie. I, I, I think for people who may not have given it a fair shake, should maybe try to revisit it. If sci-fi is your thing, maybe go into it. Uh, expect a little more out of it. Um, and as far as like the final showing for Kubrick, that dude was super smart when it came to not only adapting, but writing. He was a master of nuance, and it's just it's all over this movie. And uh, I, I think, you know, I know technically Eyes Wide Shut is his last directed film. To me, this is a pretty good note to go out on. Yeah, I mean, despite obviously how much of like it's it's a weird thing where he works like you mentioned as this meld between Spielberg and Kubrick sensibilities. It works as like I mentioned that weird mid career point for him, and also as like it feels like the one unrealized Kubrick project I would have wanted to see, because there was also he was trying to do like a Napoleon movie in the '60s with like uh, Jack Nicholson as Napoleon, which would have been a very oh. Oh, weird no. idea that that I don't think that would have worked. And also the weird thing where <laughs> did you know about like the the Beatles were trying to do Lord of the Rings and they went to him to direct it? I did know that, the, which would have been that. a disaster. Oh, Such a massive disaster. bad idea. Because <laughs> <laughs> they would have starred in it too as the Hobbits or something. Well, yeah, I think that was the idea. Abs- so, like, yeah, yeah, absolutely would have. Which would not have been a great idea. No, <laughs> no God, no. it'd be <laughs> No, no. You ring the motor. Yeah, Bob Junkin. You know, you go over here, bibbity bop. <laughs> Fine, keep your secrets. Yeah, right. <laughs> and then just Ray go, hi. <laughs> I'm Sauron. <laughs> <laughs> Um, but, but as it stands with like this one, it feels like this is the only one of those projects he worked so long on that I would have wanted to really see realized because it has so much of like the sterility of like a 2001, but also a lot of the weird satiric points of like a Dr. Strange love. There's so much there. And even Spielberg intentionally put a lot of tributes. Like I watched this right after I saw Dr. Strange love again. I love that weird bit where, um, right before the whole spinach sequence where he, like, malfunctions, the light above the dining room table looks exactly like the light from the war room. Oh, it probably is. Yeah, there's a a lot of great little tributes and stuff to Kubrick that are in there. Um, But it doesn't feel at the same time like it's just, like, a fan wanking to Stanley Kubrick. Yeah, not at all. It definitely feels like Spielberg kind of inhabiting, okay, like, the Kubrick-style sensibilities and really, I think, evolving his career from there. I don't think you would get Catch Me If You Can or Munich or some of the more recent Bridge of Spies or anything like that without this being sort of like the big fulcrum point. And I don't think after this, any time he tried to do like a big Spielberg sort of like over-the-top blockbuster thing, it really didn't work except for Tintin because he found new awe with like doing the motion capture. Because you had right. like Minority Report is a blockbuster, but one other depressing one. To a certain so fucking good too. It's so a fucking good. Very good movie. Um, though I would argue I have more issues with that movie's ending than this one's. I think the last. I do now. Yeah. 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 The last five. I have a lot of issues with that, particularly the like postscript of uh, Minority Report. Um, but uh, then, like obviously, Crystal Skull or um, or Ready Player One, they all feel like it's so much less like investment from him as opposed to this movie. He's so all in but in this very different perspective that it wasn't appreciated much at the time, but definitely deserves another revisit. Also probably is now in my top 10 of Spielberg movies. And I think like you, we didn't talk about it that much, but John Williams score for this is like operatic and beautiful. It's so fucking good. Yeah. I, I, I said the throwaway line, but yeah, it's amazing. It's so good. Great, especially great use of like um, the angelic choir voices and stuff. 
it's haunting. So definitely try and give AI another chance if you haven't. But now uh, we are getting into the close of the show. We'll be doing our picking at the very end, so stay tuned for that. But before we do any of that picking, we have to read your feedback out there in the audience, because every Monday we try and do at Pod. We ask you about, like, hey, what's your favorite, least favorite thing related to whatever topic that we're doing for the week? And so we ask you all about your favorite, least favorite Stanley Kubrick films. And we got a couple of you chiming in with, like, James Rodriguez, who said, Paths of Glory is unforgettable and devastating. 2001 A Space Odyssey engrosses me every time I watch it. The Shining is horror royalty, and for good reason. Uh, Full Metal Jacket is better in the first half than it is the second half, but I but that doesn't stop it from captivating me. Uh, Brian Kane said, I recently watched Paths of Glory for the first time a few months ago. A great example of how raw filmmaking skill can help elevate a relatively standard film premise. Full Metal Jacket is a superb movie uh, that I have no interest in ever watching again. Kara Holden says, it really is no surprise, but Full Metal Jacket is one of the best horror movies ever made. And while I haven't seen most of his films, this one is one I particularly love. Um, hey, Zeus says, um, if you're a young man that hasn't seen A Clockwork Orange, then you lose all your edgelord privileges. Um, his worst is probably the moon landing. It looked awful. And then Ryan Corderman says, gotta give it up for the raunchy teen sex comedy Lolita. Which is technically true. Yep. There yeah. goes that Ryan Corderman again. Silly. Silly Just Ryan. being a silly, silly jester. <laughs> Again, I don't really have a dog in this fight because I'm not huge onto him. I can agree with a lot of those, and I get it, but eh, it's just not for me, man. I will say, I did revisit Clockwork Orange, which is another one I haven't watched since high school, and I would say that one, I still, like, I loved it at the time because I'm, like, hey, is kind of intimating. It's very much edge like, oh my god, this is so fucked up, what does it say about society? And now I feel basically like, oh, this is like a slightly better version of Joker. <laughs> in as much yeah, as like in as much as yeah. like at the very least this is made by somebody who was being original at the time right as as opposed to like copying so much other stuff um and it's it's another one where i think it's got like a lot of great visuals and i love malcolm mcdowell's performance but i think especially like the first half where it's a lot more about his criminal escapades feels so much more kind of exhausting not shocking as much as just like okay we're gonna have another rape scene another right. one we're gonna keep doing uh, this uh, I honestly like getting way more engaged once it, like after prison, and realizing how like fucked over he is as a in this particular society, and especially when his uh, droogs come back as police officers, like that has all the great satirical intent that the movie I think is trying to get to earlier, and it just is a bit late to the draw. I agree with everything you just said. Like Malcolm McDowell is great in it. I, I but I agree that after prison stuff is the most interesting part of the movie, like his sort of reforming. I mean, ultimately, at the end, it's just crazy. Um, I kind of referenced it earlier, but Paths of Glory being mentioned, that one has shut up to like my like second favorite Kubrick movie. Um, I forever. I mean, it's been forever. If you don't know, it's a um, it's a World War One movie. That's about Kirk uh-huh. Douglas basically trying to um, defend three privates who are basically put in up to the slaughter after a really bad raid ends up happening that leaves a lot of people murdered and a lot of people try to like. Soldiers try to not actually attack because it's an impossible mission, but the like chief generals are like, "Oh, we're going to have to make an example of them, and we have to do this to keep our soldiers in line." And it's such a bleak, weird, like Kafka esque story about Kirk Douglas having all this stuff to defend, and all the like main upper echelon people are like doing a kangaroo court to basically convict all these like three young men, and it's fucking brutal. It's like so 
hard to watch in terms of just like the psychological toll it would take on somebody to like be in the middle of this where you fight for your country and you end up getting just so fucked over by the people who are leading you. It's it's a brilliant movie. Well, I got to revisit that one, man. Like I said, it's been years, years, years. I can't even tell you how old I was when I saw it. I know I've seen it, though. But yeah, that's definitely one that, hey, that's cool. It gives me something to maybe try to revisit. And it's only maybe 89 I'm- minutes long. Oh, well, then there you go. I'm all about it. Yeah, honestly, I would say, like, having watched, like, especially the earlier ones, those are the ones I would honestly say don't work as well. Like, the, the two movies did, there was Fear and Desire and Killer's Kiss, which just feel like very much like technical exercises for Kubrick kind of getting his shit together. I don't think he starts really becoming Kubrick until, like, the killing, then Paths of Glory. I think it's where you start seeing, like, his style kind of take shape. Um, but, and even, like, with some of the movies that are flawed, like, I agree, I think Full Metal Jacket, the stuff with Arlie Ermey and Vincent D'Onofrio is pure genius, and the second half isn't as genius as that, but at the same time, there's so much great stuff, like, I think Adam Baldwin is phenomenal in that movie as a piece of shit, um, and then the whole sniper attack sequence that, like, finishes off that movie is tremendous and dark and disturbing. I don't like Matthew Modine, but I never liked Matthew Modine, so... I think he works fine for that particular role as just, like, this guy going in way over his head. I think he especially works in the sequence where Vincent D'Onofrio has the sniper in the bathroom. Yeah, yeah, that's a good scene. Yeah. I'll give you that. And, of course, you, you are the Ermy creating such a masterful Yeah, well, but absolutely. It's so iconic. I mean, it's incredibly iconic. That guy built a lifelong career on that performance. I didn't know they stacked shit that high. Mm-hmm. And also, you know, one that I hadn't seen before, but I thought was phenomenal, and I think is very underrated in terms of his career, is Barry Lyndon, which was so intimidating to me before, just because, like, it's over three hours long, it's a period drama, so you think, oh, it's gonna be, like, this long slog of a movie, and it doesn't feel it at all, because it's basically about this guy, it comes from, like, a poor sect of Ireland, and he is trying to, like, make his way in the world, and the way he sort of finds his ability to, like, go from poor to rich is by completely disowning any kind of empathy he has for other people and becoming part of the aristocracy. It's a genius satire for that that still really holds up very well. Yeah, I've seen that one too. I remember really, really enjoying that one. But again, it's been a long time. And it's also, if nothing else, one of the most beautiful movies because it's all natural light. I'm a sucker for that anytime they do that. I'm not going to say too much on The Shining. Uh, We'll put a little pen in that one. Yeah, you might want to stay tuned to the Patreon for maybe more about that. Wink. Yeah. Yeah. Wink, um, winkies. And you know, I also say, because um, you were mentioning the whole thing about seeing 2001 in the theater, um, I did uh-huh. have that experience uh, back when theaters were around. Uh, not, they had the 70 millimeter screenings of it that were going on yeah. like um, a couple of years ago. Um, uh-huh. And I was like, well, I definitely need to see it because the thing is, there's so many phenomenal like aspects of that movie I love. Like, I think the Blue Danube thing rightly deserves to be as like iconic as it is. Yeah, I agree. Um, and the like the monolith stuff. And I think also Hal Nine Thousand is one of the most ingenious like AI creations in fiction. I love Hal. All the stuff where it's Hal going crazy and like the sort of weird horror movie in space aesthetics of that like that like middle chunk of the movie I think is like perfect. And then there's a lot of other like spits and spurts I like about that movie, but it also drones on for quite a while. <laughs> Uh-huh. I absolutely agree with you. But at the same time, I would definitely recommend, like, if, if you can somehow manage to see it on a big screen, it's like, that is the time to see it, where I still had all the same problems I did when I saw it on a smaller screen, but, sure. like, 
the majesty of it on like a larger screen is worth seeing. Yeah. Right. That's what I want to see out of it. That's that's the part I've I missed because I've only seen it on on home screens. I'm sure I'm still going to think the same thing about it, but I I'm, I expect to be sort of awed by it as well. It deserves that chance, if nothing else. Yeah. On the big screen, I think so. Um, and you've kind of mentioned Eyes Wide Shut not being a favorite of yours. Um, I really dig that movie, and I think particularly it's one of the better performances of Nicole Kidman, who doesn't get enough credit for that movie. The whole sequence where she's high and talking to Tom Cruise about basically like. Don't you realize that women have, like, sexual fantasies, you fucking idiot, and maybe it's not about you? Maybe I'm thinking about some other dude who isn't even in this fucking room, and he's like, no, I can't possibly think that. That can't be true. I have to disprove you by going to a sex club weird, like, fucking mask party. (laughs) I know. I don't know. I I just found it boring, man. I really did. I found it just to be kind of a bore fest when I first saw it, but I've only seen it once. So maybe I gotta give that one another chance, too, but I'm not expecting much difference of opinion to be honest well it's in your back pocket for maybe redemption for a bad pick who knows who knows i do (laughs) well there it is well thank you all for that feedback uh we also want to thank some people like chris oliver for the intro and outro music on our show listen to more of his music chrisoliver.bandcamp.com thanks to emily skirter for the art for our show and uh thank you to of course all our patrons as well patreon.com slash pod. we appreciate every cent that is given to us over there. Once again, it's only $1 a month. You get bonus episodes. You get to vote in polls to pick movies we cover for the show. Um, you'll be getting a bonus episode near the end of the month here for our trivia game that we'll be recording soon. Hopefully, knock on wood. Uh, yeah, there's all sorts of fun stuff over there. And uh, you can find us also in general at Pod on Facebook and Twitter where we post up those feelers. And you can email us, feedback, bill at gmail.com, all spelled out. You can find me at not the who's Tommy on Twitter. Also find me MarianneThomas.wordpress.com. That's where I put out like a bunch of stuff for like reviews and lists and posting up episodes of the show. And uh, you can find Adam just staring at the blue fairy, wishing he could be a real boy for two thousand years. Yeah. It's, well, no, I'm kind of wishing for her to take it all away, like right now. Just <laughs> put me out of my <laughs> Please, Meryl Streep fairy, take me away. I would put that hatch to that thing so fucking fast and just let the cool water just flow upon me. <laughs> just end it all. Right next to your robot, Teddy. No, oh, not Teddy. I can't put him out like that. <laughs> Teddy's your but, boy. Yeah. Teddy's with you through so much. That's my boy. But I mean, Teddy held on to your mom's lock of hair for so long, Adam, so you could clone and have your weird mommy for a day day. <laughs> Oh, God. Good Lord. I don't want to have a day with my mom now. I can't imagine 200 years from now. Good Lord. You look like you're eating a lot. Oh, thanks. Good to see you. You you want to go to sleep? Why don't you go to sleep? For more of this great mother-son banter here, you can subscribe to us, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, podcasting platforms like that. And if you're listening on the ESO network, why not dig into our archives on the Podbean network after you've listened to all the great shows on the ESO network besides us. And if nothing else, if you could rate, review, or share the show around, that helps us a lot. That gets us more visibility out there. Please. You know, the thing is, we've been begging and pleading now for over two years. Just fucking help. Just do anything. Just share something. You are our blue fairy. We keep asking you and nothing is said. (laughs) (laughs) To be fair, we do still have a couple champions out there who share our shit quite frequently. Of course, yeah. 
I'm not going to name drop. I'm not going to give them the satisfaction. But there are people. <laughs> there are people out there. There are dozens of them. Dozens. Oh, that's pushing it. Way the, too much. A dozen. <laughs> I go There's a phone on that floor. <laughs> well, there will be more than four things to talk about next week when we do our next episode, Dan, which we're going to do the picking for. Um, and uh, the, it'll be interesting because uh, for the first time in a while, uh, our topic for the next week is actually tied to something kind of relevant with a movie coming out. Because uh, it, it's weird how this episode, Time Travel Films, has been oh. technically tied to Bill and Ted Face the Music through its weird schedule changes and our weird schedule changes. And eventually now it's all synced up because that'll be coming out. This very week we're posting this, so right after you see Bill and Ted, you can listen to our episode on Time Travel Films, which I'm honestly very curious about. I'm I'm excited for Bill and Ted. I think it looks fun. I'm 1,000% indifferent on it. Like, if I see it, cool. If not, cool. It's not something I'm going to seek out, I don't think. Here's the thing. I probably wouldn't be nearly as excited for it if not for the career Keanu's had since, like, the last, like, decade or so. Because I don't think he would have bothered doing this if he didn't have an interest in what they were kind of saying with the sequel. Yeah. But so let's get into the picking, Adam. Usually every week, each of us has two good movies, two bad movies, and we're picking number between one and ten for our choices. So that gets us a good and bad feature. But uh, our patrons sometimes get to pick those. Like once a month, we give them the ability to. And they chose this one for uh, our good picks that were your choices between the jacket and Predestination, and they end up picking Predestination, which will be our good pick, which I'm very curious about because I've heard a lot about it and I've not seen it. It's a wild one. It's 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 one of the few Ethan Hawke movies I like too. Oh, that's interesting. Well, no, that's not true. one of the few Ethan Hawke performances I like. I'm not. I don't really dig on Ethan Hawke too much. Like he's okay. I think he's serviceable, but uh, this movie it's a wild one. Well, this is well, a crazy. Movie. We'll definitely talk about a lot of that. But I have my two bad picks that have yet to be picked, Adam. So it's your decision number between one and ten for my two bad time travel movies bad time travel movies what am i getting myself into here i'll say this much there's one that's super obvious and one that isn't i I, i'm not sure what the super obvious one is either that's the thing okay i'm just gonna go right down three okay at number five i had the untraditional choice which I'm very excited okay. about because it's uh, it's one of the strangest movies that's ever existed. And I'm kind of glad we're talking about it. It's an animated film, and it does involve time travel, but not with humans, but the reptilian sort of creatures here. We're talking, we're back, a dinosaur story. Oh, no. <laughs> God damn it. Oh, no. <laughs> you didn't expect that, no. did you, though? <laughs> I did not expect that. What was the uh, bad, obvious choice? The obvious choice ended up being uh, the 2002 version of The Time Machine. Okay, so I did kind of figure that was going to be it. Yes, interesting That's fact, right. both directed by the same person, Simon Wells, who is the great-grandson of H.G. Wells. Simon Wells directed We're Back? He was actually more of like an animation person, because he also did like Five Goes West and stuff. Um, but then that was like his first live action movie was The Time Machine. <laughs> I think it's only because of the pedigree of him being the great grandson of H.G. Wells that he ended up getting that fucking gig. Well, that's 1000% why he got that. <laughs> Have you seen that shit fest? It's so bad. Oh, God. Okay. So, Predestination is We're Back. A dinosaur story. <laughs> Wait till you watch Predestination. It's this is the weird. This might be the weirdest episode we've ever done. Well, might be. 
We'll get into all of that, but uh, we gotta do our Gigolo Joe, don't you know, dance moves out of here. Good night, everybody. Nobody wants to see me. I would literally break my hip doing anything he did in that movie. (laughs) Gigolo Joe, don't you? Oh, oh, God, no. (laughs) No, get help, please. Good night. Goodbye forever. has been a broadcast of the ESO Network. Be part of the crew and help support our shows by donating to our ESO Patreon or by shopping for the Tee Public Store, which can all be found at www.esonetwork.com. The ESO Network, your station for all things geek.